Is social media a form of archiving? How do you manage to pursue different creative interests at the same time? What has studying for a PhD in digital humanities been like? Welcome to another episode of Crash Culture. I am Benin, your host and a history student. Joining me today is the eclectic and radiant Rihanna Walcott. Rihanna is a writer, a PhD candidate at King's College London, co-founder of Project Myopa, professional jazz singer and the parent of the cutest of dogs. Um, yeah. <laughs> Rihanna, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you feeling? Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm pretty good. I've actually got the dog this weekend, so Incredible. he's napping behind us. <laughs> you know, if he'll make an appearance later, who knows? <laughs> but yeah, I'm doing all right. Thank you very much for having me. Today's episode is about gender and the heritage sector, where we're going to be talking about Rihanna's research of black women's identity formation in digital spaces and unconventional archival processes. So I think it'd be a good idea and just like really helpful for listeners to get a sense of how your journey from writing to academia and music came about. Um, And especially if you feel like academia and music are connected in any way. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I guess it's funny because I I sort of feel like I wear multiple hats in the way that I work right now. So when... um, Whenever I give a bio, for instance, like um, I love the bio you had for me, by the way, it was really nice. (laughs) But whenever I give a bio, I always go, okay, and I do this and this and this and this. And they all seem very separate to me. But um, then I'm often when I'm doing events like this and so on, I'm often asked to sort of think about the ways in which my work connects to each other, which is really helpful for me because it reminds me that first and foremost, I am a creative so you know it always was to me like going through school for instance it would be like okay um I will do this academic stuff and then on the side I'll have my music on the side I'll have xyz but it doesn't always work out that way um in real life so you know there's the academic work I do but then there's also the fact that I work in mental health and I have a a forthcoming book The Colour of Madness that was previously published a few years ago and will be published again next year but it's not just a discussion of mental health in the AME communities it's also a collection of creativity it's art it's poetry it's um you know it's short stories it's fiction it's 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 not just one way of looking at um mental health and narratives and I think that that has been really key to my research that research isn't just um the cut and standard there's no such thing as academic distance there's no such thing as like a narrative or a perspective that doesn't have um that doesn't bleed into the work that you're doing so my research is about black people and black women in particular and I think that my research couldn't be done by anyone but me and not just because I'm a black woman but because the way that I've created this research is so much about me and the way that I live online and the way that and the person that I am and my experiences there's no way it could have been done by anyone else I think that goes for so much of the kind of stuff that um that happens in academia that I think a lot of people think that um you know there's this fiction of neutrality that to be an academic is to be very 
cis hat straight, <laughs> cis hat white male kind of thing to, you know, be this idea of a neutral that means that you can do your research without any part of you bleeding into it. And, you know, you can look at quite dispassionately at different things, but I don't think that that's possible. So, yes, all of the sort of creative things that I do, the, f- the stuff that I do to keep me a full and rounded person is very important to the research I do as well. So I research um, things like Black Twitter and, you know, the way that black people speak online. And that's important because I am a black person online and I engage with all of these conversations and they're fun and they're really important to me and they're important in the way that I, re- I view the world. You know, they're, they're very key to the way that I engage with the world and that has to be a key part of my research too. Where did the journey toward getting to this point begin or like how- what was like the general trajectory? Rather than it being like a journey in a traditional sense, it's mm. very funny when you're an academic that's just never left school. Like I've never had a September where I wasn't starting a new school year <laughs> in my life. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. since starting nursery, that's it. <laughs> I've just been going. So it's not really a journey as such in the way that other people think about like journeys to their careers. I just never stopped. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? So, you know, it's more that the only thing that's ever happened is that I've added things on, you know, yeah. but at the core of it, I'm still just someone packing up a school bag on the 1st of September, <laughs> <laughs> buying a new pencil case, like nothing's really changed. So um, I guess the only thing that really changes is that like eventually after a certain period of time, the number of people drops off and the interest that you have narrows. And you end up reading, writing, researching stuff that other people aren't talking about yet. You know, there's still always people to learn from. I'm still being taught. It's just that it's not, you're not being taught in as um, formulaic a way as you were before. Like there's no one who has all of the answers. Like you get to this point where you're going, actually, this is what the answer is. And I'm going to tell you because no one else has said it yet. That's the only thing that changes. So I had this idea, like when I was in when I was in year thirteen and looking to go to university, um, I wasn't sure whether I was going to go to university and study English lit or music, and I sort of decided that I would do English lit. But my promise to myself was that I would continue to be musical forever, because I was like it would be easier for me to go and study an academic sub- subject like English lit and keep up with being a musician than it would be to do it the other way around. And that's pretty much, (laughs) that's pretty much been, I never really went back on that from 18 to 27. That's kind of what I said. So, um, you know, I make sure, and it's not even a, it's more of a well-being thing than anything else. Like when I'm not making music or art in some way, I'm quite unhappy. So it's been a really natural part of my life to be musical alongside everything since I was about eight. So it's just normal. Again, it's more of the same. And it seems like it comes from a very like intuitive place as well. Yeah. I mean, my tastes haven't changed very much. You know, as you said, like intuitive or, you know, something that was quite natural. Like 
I knew I liked jazz from eight years old and I still like jazz at 27. <laughs> so it's kind of been like that, you know. Yeah. So. I'm really interested in knowing where your research is at, especially because like PhDs are just constantly shifting. But um, you've been working on it for quite a while now. I'm interested in knowing like what, <laughs> what point um, you've reached. Oh, God. Um, the hand-wringing crying stage <laughs> that's the stage I'm at so it's due in spring uh, I'm trying to get a first draft in in the next few months basically it still is all to play for that's kind of how it feels right now like I still feel like I'm learning so much at every point in this PhD I don't feel like I've um, made that many strides into definitively saying things yet if you get me which I'm hoping the next sort of six months will be for me that bit where you say okay here's what it is and here's what it is now so I've published little bits and pieces not very much yet um a lot of it's been sort of talking and thinking the bit before writing the sort of form of my project as well is still you know the next month will be where I really turn around and say okay it is this and it is not this. This is this is what I'm doing. But to give you a sort of picture of what that is at the moment, I'm looking at social media. In particular, I'm focusing on Facebook. It's funny because, as you said, I've been doing this for so long now. Um, back in 2017, when I started, Facebook was, was dying, but it was not dead. Yeah. <laughs> and... Now, when I say I'm studying Facebook, I'm like, wow, <laughs> throwback. <laughs> studying Facebook, oh my God, who even, who knows her? <laughs> but um, yeah, like at the beginning of conceptualizing this project, when I was starting to think about it in 2015, 2016, that was Facebook's heyday when it came to like loads of um, groups and like activist spaces and online spaces where, you know, black people gathered and now it's no longer that space in quite the same way it was. But yeah, so I'm talking about that, but also mainly like thinking about Black Twitter. I'm thinking about how Black people speak online and what that says about identity and you know, what that says in a Black British context in particular, because a lot of the sort of research is focused on African-Americans. And, you know, I'm trying to kind of interested in the sort of, multiple and divergent ways of being black online and what that looks like and how we express it and how we draw our own personal um barriers and lines um linguistically and otherwise so yeah in a nutshell that's what i'm doing is there are you looking at like because especially online and especially on twitter um there's like a merging of lots of different cultures. Like, are you at all looking at like a culture that has been created through the combination of all the different kinds of people on Twitter? Or is it more of like understanding that these are separate things in the world outside of the digital? Um, well, yeah, I mean, so where I'm at right now, one of the things I'm looking at right this second is looking at... Um, sort of like black British language, both online and offline. 
And one of the things that people think about or use most commonly to talk about how black people speak in the UK is MLE, Multicultural London English, which obviously has its flaws because it doesn't just apply to London and many influences that come from so many different places that, you know, it, it's, um, you know, not something that you can quite neatly say this is how this um, category of people speak. So, yeah, it's a very complicated one that does um, span lots of different cultures and, and uh, groups. Do you end up doing like linguistic analysis as well? Um, that? Yeah, much to my regret. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm not a linguist, but... This is the weirdest thing about research, I think, because like I took a little two years of linguistics at university as like a little side, um, you know, when you take your electives in the first couple of years and thought, oh, this is super interesting. Toyed with the idea of doing it as a, you know, of doing it alongside English literature and then decided that would be way too much work. And now, bloody five years later, <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, linguistic, that's the one. And it's awful because I absolutely do not have the qualifications. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm doing. So it's, it's funny because it's when you realize that um, disciplines are a complete scam. Like they don't mean anything. Like yeah. I'm from an English literature background. Now I'm a digital humanist. And now I'm looking at linguistics. Like it means nothing. I'm just interested in what I'm interested in. And that fits where it fits. So, yeah, unfortunately, I'm now going to have to learn something. Woe betide. I'm so upset about it. <laughs> hate learning. But, yeah, <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> you describe Twitter and wider social media spaces as collaborative Black-managed archives. Um, could you speak more to this unconventional archive and what an archive means for you and what an archive can offer? Absolutely. So. When I think of an archive, or I think when a lot of people think of an archive, you think about buildings, you think about kind of quite colonial projects where, you know, the management of knowledge and who is allowed to access it and the decisions about what belongs in that archive are made by like a very small elite or whatever. But then... I also think about my friends that are historians and who have decided to visit other kinds of archives, like the Black Cultural Archives in, in Brixton, for instance, and thinking about spaces and the ways that um, Black people and other groups, other marginalised groups who are traditionally removed from traditional archives, from um, centres of learning, like universities and things like that, have always made their own spaces to ensure that their histories are, are kept records of, you know, not necessarily in traditional pen and paper ways, but there are certain ways in which um, marginalised folk ensure that what is meant to be recorded is recorded. So, you know, when I'm thinking about those kinds of archives, which are, I don't want to say non-traditional, because of course they are traditional, they've existed for a very, very long time. Um, but they are non, they're not the British Library. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think about those spaces like that. And I think about what Stuart Hall wrote about with the living archive and the idea that archives are not dead, that they are not things that are fixed, that 
there are additions that we are continuing to build and maintain and decide what belongs and you know everyone makes their own decisions about what what um is worthy of canonizing as well that's like a really important part of thinking about decoloniality deciding who decides what is worthy of study and and um yeah that was stuff that i sort of had been caring about for a while because of project myopia thinking about academia and the ways in which we decide um what is worthy of study and who's allowed to study it and what spaces it should be studied in and how it's taught. The way that I'm engaging with Twitter and Facebook and social media spaces sort of treats them as archives too. Um, and particularly when it comes to um, the affordances of the platforms that allow them to function as an archive. You know, there are ways in which the infrastructures of the platform itself allow for you to navigate the space as an archive, to find the things that you need to find and to historicize certain things. And um, so that seems quite obvious with a space like Facebook. It seems less so with other spaces. So a space like Twitter, for instance, I was interested in the ways that like, well, Twitter doesn't function incredibly well as an archive in some ways. You've got the hashtags, of course, that group certain topics. But if you're writing about something and you don't use a hashtag, then it's not going to be groups in that way, right? So there are so many ways that people get around that, which to me is also a really interesting way of way, like the ways that archives can be resistant, the way they can be um, radical. Because, you know, the choices that people make to maintain those archives to, uh, to decide what belongs in there and what is kept is by its own nature, like a very sort of radical behavior. So when it comes to a space like Twitter, for instance, and you think about when something happens on Twitter and there's like an event and everyone will be talking about it for maybe a day or two days. But it will remain in the public memory, the memory of the Twitter collective for some time after that. Like certain things will happen on black Twitter, this space that we understand is a space that exists, um, where there will be in jokes that are curated and remembered by the users, even if you weren't part of the joke at the time, just by virtue of being on Twitter at the time the joke was happening and having seen it, you're able to piece together this timeline of events, um, an archive. And I, I would argue that that is an archive. So there are certain ways that those things are managed, like tweet, tweets can be deleted, but people will take screenshots or, you know, people will refer back to it. And there's ways in which things are self-referential, where people will... Um, quote tweet things that happened months ago or you know people will bookmark tweets and come back to it like anytime someone does something bad on twitter or or or, or it's, it's uh, mechanisms of accountability also happen with these archives as well where if someone does something and someone turns around and goes this you as like a reminder of something that they'd done a long time before that is community archive building that's, that's 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 what I've been toying with lately, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
it's really incredible how platforms that are initially supposed to be just kind of people sharing thoughts of unearthed things like you were saying accountability processes um mm. and like forms of social activism yeah. and, and grassroots community building and so on yeah yeah and a lot of it ends up becoming like almost similar to oral history and I was just wondering, like, do you know of any like preservation processes, or do you even think that like these these spaces need to be preserved in a very specific way, or is oral history and collective memory enough? That is such a good question because I wonder what the benefit of treating Twitter like a traditional archive would be. I think there are certainly mechanisms that people use to, you know, to capture digital ephemera. So. You know, a, re- a good example is just like screenshotting. That is a method of catching um, ephemerally. It can't be deleted if you've got it as a screenshot. But in terms of these sort of smaller intra-community processes where, um, you know, thinking about Twitter archives in that sense as something that I'm not so sure that that would be beneficial I, I guess it's, it's a sticky one it's an ethical one because do people consent to have their their thoughts archived in that kind of way as well i don't know i think i don't know what um what the answer is to that one actually even just just speaking very strictly about the way that twitter functions with its um privacy and data laws and things like that like you're allowed to access a certain amount through their API, like you're allowed to access a certain scrape a certain amount of tweets as a researcher or whatever, but there is um, a cap on how much you're actually allowed to access anyway. So even Twitter as a site doesn't allow you to capture the whole of Twitter in that way. And also, how do you ensure that you've got everything? Yeah. Like that's one of the things that I definitely come up against in my, because, you know, I'm one person. And I'm one person who's very embedded in the research they're doing. So the tweets and the things that I see are coming to me and I'm aware that they are coming to me through the lens of my own positionality. Like it is dependent on the people that I follow. It's dependent on the spaces that I'm in. It's dependent on the time of day that I'm on Twitter and all sorts of things like that. I couldn't. I know that I'm not getting a full picture and I don't know who could get a full picture. So there's just so many things to consider and like people's consent to that as well. Yeah. You know, so every time when I'm writing about this, I have to sort of make the caveat that actually this is what I'm learning. The inferences I'm drawing are centered around myself as a researcher too. Yeah. And that's like quite a fundamental, like, history question as well you can never really get like a full picture of anything but it feels so much more tangible when it's kind of like in front of you on a digital space yeah especially when it's like oh i've got all this data i've been able to scrape all this data and it looks really good and it looks really complete but that doesn't mean it's yeah like it's a fallacy um i do a lot i do a bit of um bit of criticism and initially when I started like looking into it and understanding it, it I like very quickly got interested in theatre. So um most reviews and theatre criticism basically acted as like, archives for shows I'd never seen before and like mm. got like impressions of them. 
um, and that's sort of like how I see reviews now. But I was wondering if you see your own like research and analysis of these spaces as like a form of archival um yeah spaces oh my god that's a really lovely way to put it to be honest but like i mean even as you're saying that i'm thinking about my journey as a researcher and the journey that this research has taken like how i mentioned that at the beginning this was very heavily focused on facebook and now the sort of the person I was, the research I was interested in, or stuff I was looking at on Facebook at the time is no longer, no longer really exists. So it's almost like that writing is like a little snapshot of the kind of researcher and research and, and of Facebook at the time. So that's kind of like how I'm going to have to present it as well, that some of the stuff that I am now writing about or that I say, has um not the same relevancy at this point in time you know like the the project itself as something that lasts over around four years um or four and a half years plus pandemic um is is something that changes so much from the beginning to the end that you could definitely in a sort of meta kind of way call it an archive of the way that you were thinking at a certain period of time and um a snapshot because yeah this is the thing you can't make you can't draw any huge conclusions about facebook or twitter or anything like that in a project that only lasts four years because it changes too quickly it's a completely different space you have to be very aware that your research and the sort of inferences you draw are not universal and that becomes like your stuff not being universal is is no surprise when you're a black researcher anyway. That's not really a problem that I think black researchers have to work with often because we're being told all the time that our research isn't universal. It's, you know, it's white researchers. The author of A Kick in the Belly, Stella Dadsey, spoken and written about black history not being taught as a story of victimhood, which has been really interesting to me in terms of like thinking about past people and the ways their stories are like recorded and retaught. Mm. Um, and I was wondering, was when you're reading and thinking about, um, and almost like mapping out these collaborative digital archi- archives, um, like how important this is for you to oh think God, about yeah. the ways that you're also writing about it or researching it. Um, and yeah, just that process. On a personal level, as a researcher who's dealing with um black lives and black lives um i don't think that i would have the strength to have all of my work be about black victimhood and black black sorrow the only time that i enjoy writing and enjoy doing what i do is when i'm focusing on black joy like yeah. so much funny like i want i want people to read my thesis and laugh like <laughs> every time i write something I'm always thinking, okay, so is the reader, like, I'm writing for black readers, first of all. Like, everything, you know, I'm writing for people who know what I'm talking about already. And I don't even always notice I'm doing it. One of the pieces of feedback I got on a piece of work I was doing, um, like a chapter I wrote, was like, you don't actually introduce what you're talking about until, like, a little while in. 
So I would, so the reader, the reviewer said, I knew what you were talking about because like I'm also black and I saw this happening, but I was wondering if that was intentional. The paper is about in-jokes and I wrote the paper as an in-joke. So (laughs) if you weren't in on the joke, you wouldn't even understand the paper until about three or four pages in. (laughs) And like, to me, that's such a personal victory, like to, to be able to write about blackness black joy and black jokes black in jokes that require being black to understand in an academic format that still celebrates blackness and black people like to me that's exactly like that's that's so that's so much fun that's such a that's such a thumbs up to the institution that's 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 everything i want to do and um you know i just think that if i weren't able to do that what a misery this would be like i can't I can't go through black Twitter and explain why all the jokes are funny. (laughs) That's the best way to ruin a joke. Like, I think that I'm there to document and to laugh (laughs) and to make other people who are also there laugh. And that is what brings me the most joy in my thesis. What brings me the least joy is the actual act of writing. But when I get to write something like that and someone else who was there at the time reads it and laughs and goes, oh, shit, I remember that. That was so ridiculous. Then that's what I want to do. You know, I want to take these moments that are considered mundane or unimportant and um, actually say, well, this is super worthy of study and something really clever is happening here. Here it is. That's 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 the that's the ultimate goal. Yeah, that's brilliant. Um... I think a lot of us dream for a future where academic institutions don't exist. Um, what future do you envision and how do you see um, archival work or your research specifically morphing if it exists at all? Well, I completely agree. Yeah, burn down the university. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it here. But I think that, um, I think that the work I'm doing will fit just fine in this new future because it was difficult for me. I'm thinking long and hard before I started this work to think like, should I be doing it? Am I taking this out of a space where it belongs and bringing it into a space that it was deliberately avoiding? Like that is what it is to be, you know, on the margins to be. And I think I, I don't know where I fell on that. Actually, I'm still a bit ambivalent about it all. But, you know, I try to, you know, in making my work so clearly directed to us, for us, by us, about us, um, that's how I square it with myself. I think that because of the nature of these archives, the fact that they are still going to be there, they're there doing their business, whether I'm writing about them or not, like this work is happening and is interesting and is worthy of study and everyone there is aware of what's happening. Do you know what I mean? It's not something that we don't know we're doing. And, you know, to hold these sorts of radical extra archives kind of thing is um, something that we're all used to doing. I don't think it's out of the question that it would exist elsewhere. Like To me, the work I do within the university is one of the smallest parts of my work. You know what I mean? Like the majority of what I do is more invested in stuff like this, stuff like, um, you know, my sort of mental health work, 
and publishing creatively and things like that. So much of my work and activism is invested in deconstructing the university as it is, as it exists right now, and hopefully guiding it to be something better. That um, I mean, the whole point of it is that this Twitter archive is something that has nothing to do with the university, really. Like, it just so happens that I'm in a university and I'm writing about it. It doesn't really have any, there's nothing deeper to it than that, I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. It's been really, really interesting hearing more about your research. Um, Thank you for asking me. (laughs) (laughs) It's so easy to just get caught up in your own head about it and, like, you know, forget to talk about it. I don't really talk about it that much. (laughs) Do you have any, like, final things to say for any um, current or past or non-mentees um, who are interested in anything you have done or engaged mm. in? Well, I would say first and foremost to get in touch if you're interested in anything I have done or I'm doing. Um, I tweet at, at Rihanna underscore Walcott and my website is com. If you're interested in talking about academia or Twitter or just saying hello. Um, so, you know, I think that this kind of work on social media spaces, um, isn't something that a lot of people know you can do, know that you can make a living out of, know that there's an interest and an appetite for. I think a lot of people think that it's just like, you know, faffing around online and to some extent yes I am just faffing around (laughs) online I'm incredibly online Um, but um, I would love to see this field this space be a place that is much more dominated by um, narratives from marginalized people narratives from ethnic minorities and um, you know queer people it just at the moment it isn't that at the moment the digital humanities in the UK is very much dominated by people thinking about AI and um, programming and uh, robots, which is all good. Like, that's fine, <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that there's enough people doing the kind of work that, the you know, that well, there are people. There's people like Keisha Bruce. There's Dr. Francesca Saban. There's um, Temi Lasard anderson There are... These people are all my friends, though. <laughs> and I know we would love to have, um, you know, more people to have these kinds of discussions, more people thinking about what it is to be young and British and online. And, um, yeah, like, it would just be such a vibrant field if there were more of us to have these conversations. Because right now, a lot of these conversations are very much happening in the Americas. And... Um, we are here and we are also using social media in our own very distinct way. And I think that there's a lot of room to talk about the people behind it and the work that we do and to think about it in a way that is, you know, more than trivial because it's not trivial. It's really interesting. So, yeah, I would just like like to use that moment as like a, a widespread call out. that If you're interested in any of the sorts of things that I've said today, um, or you think that there's anyone you know that could be interested, like, please do um, get in touch and I'll do everything in my power, <laughs> my limited power to, you know, get you on the track to start to sort of join us in theorising around this kind of stuff. So it needs new blood. <laughs>
in a previous interview, you've mentioned that you did a lot of baking at the start of the pandemic. If it was important for the people to know if you were a dessert, what would you be? Oh, man. <laughs> I've never been asked that before. I'd probably be a sticky toffee pudding. Incredible. <laughs> That's not something that I tend to make. Yeah. Because I think when you find a good sticky toffee pudding, it's like the best sticky toffee pudding it can be done really badly it can be done really well and um it's very comforting very stodgy like no one's gonna say no like it's you know a little bit overly sweet sometimes but still just a stand-up dessert and I think I'd like for people to think of me that way as a stand-up dessert yeah perfect texture as well yeah thank you so much thank you for having me This episode was created by Arts Emergencies Youth Collective with support from the University of Edinburgh and thanks goes to Dave O'Brien, Orion Brook and of course Rihanna Walcott. See you next time.